Welcome to episode 61 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and it is time for another episode. For number 61, we're finally getting to a topic we've hinted at for the past two episodes, everyone's favorite style of camera, the point and shoot. We hope to cover everything from the simplest, focus-free, fully automatic models to some of the more premium models with full manual modes, high-quality lenses, and all-metal bodies. Before we get started, though, let's do some introductions. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Chocolate Pecan Pie himself, Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul, how much alcohol do you put in your pies? Uh, a pint <laughs> of bourbon. You know, oh, no, you asked the pie. I was talking about the baker. Ah. <laughs> Next, from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Birthday Boy himself, Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo. Did you get any nice presents for your birthday? I did. I did. It, it coincides with uh, with Christmas, and my wife cashed in all our credit card points, and we ended up with a Nikon S2 on the way. So uh, I think that's a pretty good birthday present. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Anthony is not able to join us this week, but in the spirit of Anthony's love for underwater photography, I promise to talk about the Canon Aqua Snappy ASX. As always, we have a waiting room full of eager listeners. Let's let them in. Right. I see Tim Peters is back. Welcome back, Tim. Hey, Mike. How you going? Awesome. It's great to have you last week uh, listening to that episode. Sometimes when we do the live recording, I miss some of the things people say, but having gone through it again once the edited version is out, it was real fascinating hearing some of the things you were talking about. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's my general experience with the Camerosity podcast in general. So you listen to it more than once and you pick up on stuff that you missed. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, yeah. It's a savior in airport terminals. I'll say that. <laughs> well, there was that one guy that said that he was listening to it while driving through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So, yeah, I know because he's my best friend and he lives right upstairs. So <laughs> that's right. OK, I was in the car I with him. I suggested to put it on in the first place, which is kind of funny. Andrew Smith is back. Welcome back, Andrew. How you doing? As always, it's great to see Mark Faulkner. Mark, you've uh, you've been away for quite a few episodes. Everything going okay? Yep, doing all right. Uh, good to be back on here. Awesome. We have Raphael. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Looks like you're a first-time caller. First-time caller, long-time listener. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from. Raphael Espinoza, um, Denver, Colorado, and just uh, somebody who got back into photography about uh, 2012, so about 11 years in. Very cool. Yeah. That was a good time to get in because it was still in the lull of people selling off their film stuff. And uh, people were still pretty high on digital. And um, it's actually even before I got back into it. It was around 2014 when I jumped in. But uh, prices were rock bottom. I've I've heard wild stories of around that time, people being able to pick up like uh, screw mount bodies for under 100 bucks and such like that. So I imagine there were some good deals to be had around then. Yeah, I, my primary shooter is a Hasselblad 500C. Bought the whole kit with multiple backs and multiple lenses for $400. Very cool. And AJ is back also from the last episode. His wonderful background, although I don't see the horseman anymore. So, oh, wait, there it is. <laughs> Good evening, gentlemen. Matt Murray through. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm sorry about all the junk in the background. Um, had a problem with Zoom and didn't have time to tidy up, but uh, great to be here. That is absolutely not a reason to apologize. We encourage messy backgrounds. <laughs> You want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. I'm Matt Murray from Matt Loves Cameras. I have a YouTube channel, which is film and a bit of digital. Uh, I have a, I sort of have a podcast, which I don't update very often, but that's all about film photography. And uh, in reference to this episode, I am a point and shoot fanboy. There's a lot of great point and shoots. I had 
had mentioned to the guys we should come prepared with a, a couple small selection of models uh, to talk about. And since I can't do anything to a small degree, I have a pile of about 13 or 14 models within arm's reach that maybe will come up. Maybe they won't. But uh, uh, I, I talk too much in all these episodes, so I definitely don't want to do that again. I don't know. Let's kind of do what we did last week and uh, or I guess two weeks ago. And we'll go we'll go in order of how people appear on the screen. And uh, Andrew Smith, uh, maybe because your name begins with A, although AJ does too. So I don't really know how Zoom does it. But Andrew, what what is your contribution to the wonderful world of point and shoots? That's a good question. I think first I'd have to I'd have to say, what do you define as a point and shoot? That's actually a great question because Paul, you asked that very question, right? What did we decide? We decided uh, Konica C thirty five forward, so it'd be like nineteen sixty four. Ah, but but we're actually ignoring where point and shoot actually came from, and I came prepared. So, <laughs> what what actually where did point and shoot come from? It's where you point and you shoot, and someone else takes care of everything for you. So in reality. The initial point and shoots looked a bit like this, and I'm holding up a box camera for people that are listening because that was the original concept of point and shoot. Because I because I had to do it. I have my 1888 uh, Kodak, the replica. So you're right, though. That's that's actually that's a, a very valid point because that was Kodak. That was Eastman Kodaks. Gosh, I don't even think they were Eastman Kodak back then. They were, I think, still the Eastman Dry Plate Company when they first released that camera. But it. What was it? You push the trigger, we do the rest or something like that. Wasn't that what their slogan was? You press the button, we do the rest. That's what it is. Yeah. And that's very true because that's that really was what they did. And in my opinion, that set the stage for Kodak throughout the whole rest of the 20th and even 21st century. While Kodak certainly did make some high spec models like the Metalists and the Ektra, an overwhelming majority of the cameras that bore the Kodak name were were you know, not necessarily cheap, but they didn't aim for the high end of the market. Kodak brownie. was always the brownie. Exactly. They made millions of brownies from the original number two brownie all the way to some of the Instamatic cameras of the 60s. Kodak's mission was primarily to sell film. And the reason that they made a majority of the cameras that they did was to have more customers to buy their film. Right. The more people who had a Kodak camera, the more potential customers there were for film. And, and if you actually look at their history, many times whenever they released a, a new style of film, they would always have a new type of camera to, to do that. And in the 80s, they had the VR 35, which was when they released Kodak Color VR. They had new cameras for pocket Instamatic, Instamatic. But while Theo is absolutely correct, uh, we could go back and include things like the Kodak Brownies and, and all those stuff as point and shoot. This episode would become extraordinarily ungainly. Uh, <laughs> but we, we did decide to, to try and do our best at least kind of cap it to like the, the beginning of the, the full point and shoot automatic autofocus, mostly auto, you know, automatic. And that's, I think that's the intent of what we're trying to do. You know, the types of cameras that, you know, you can be a, a an SLR shooter or a Leica shooter, but sometimes just having a, a, a camera that does absolutely everything for you at the ready in the glove box of your car uh, in a dark corner of your camera bag. I like to use the term zoo camera. You know, I take the, the family to the zoo. This is the type of camera that while you're juggling juice boxes and pulling a wagon and trying to get in and out of all the little exhibits, you can't always have a folding range finder. Uh, to take those candid moments. And that's where the point and shoots really come in uh, and show their 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 benefits. And 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 there's so many that have great lenses 
that are capable of, of wonderful images. You just have to kind of use them to to their strengths. So with that in mind, I'll, I'll go back to Andrew. Like, what what would you say? Like, what what? Or maybe let me ask you a more direct question then. Give me an example of a camera that either you you bought on purpose or maybe you found it. Somebody gifted it to you. You found it at a garage sale. Uh, maybe it was a dollar whatever you figured what the hell but it actually really impressed you is do you have anything like that so i have two one definitely falls in that category and i i can't remember the exact designation but it was a rico i think it was a 500 something and it was like one from like the 90s that was fully automatic it had like um i think it had like one of those tell lenses where it would be like 45 or like 90 tf tf 500 yeah i think that was it yeah tf 500 it was an either or. It was it was not a zoom. It was an either or. Yeah, exactly. 30, 38 or 90, I think. Yeah, somewhere along those lines. And I, I remember having that one and I liked it, but I, I dropped it and I, it never had great autofocus and the autofocus just stopped working and it was kind of unusable. But I, I really liked that camera for the year or so I had it and it worked. I don't know if this one falls into the category, but I, I, I had a Canon Canonet QL17 I really liked. And it does have kind of an automatic shutter, but it's not really... Full auto, so oh, there we go. It's got a nice red one there. Yeah, that that that's a point and shoot camera to me. I, I would kind of consider it one because it does have the automatic features. You do have the manual focus, but it's still pretty user friendly and pretty easy. Right. We, we won't we won't get hung up on autofocus. The point and shoots can be uh, can be fixed focus. They can be uh, zone focus, or they can be manual focus. I mean, they're they're all valid cameras or happy snaps. I mean, is uh, is what or they used to call them point and pray rather than point and shoot. But uh, they're that's that, that's an excellent choice. I mean, it's a, do you have one currently? I don't. I actually, I think I ended up breaking both of those cameras, and I I kind of went for more mechanical stuff after that because it's a little more resilient. The the G threes have have had a resurgence over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the prices on them are actually quite high, and they're they're really good cameras. Once you get past the fact that you really need to use the wean cell on them because they use the the mercury battery, but the biggest issue with them is that the foam that is on the light seals and the back door is the most diabolical, nastiest foam, and it covers the entire track mm-hmm. around the back door. Rico had a lot of cameras that were like that too, where the entire door. 90% of the time, these things have completely deteriorated, and it's the worst job in the world to get off. I mean, you get the stuff all over you, um, but once you get one that's that's in, been changed, it's it's really a cool camera. And you definitely want to replace that the crumbling foam stuff, even though, and I am guilty of it. I'll be Mr. Hypocrite here. I have shot a camera with a rotted light seal. I'll just take like electrical tape and tape it around the seam. Uh, but that's usually because I I only need one roll of film out of it for the purpose of a review or something. But you really should replace that, not even just to protect it from light seals, but that stuff will fall off and get inside the camera. And, you know, we always talk about electronic cameras or some of the point and shoots are susceptible to breakage. And once they break, they're not easy to get fixed. And, and while that is still true, sometimes a, a, a piece of foam getting stuck in, in an, uh, some kind of motor or gear, who knows what it could be, it, that, that can contribute to those cameras having an unnecessary failure. So when you do find a, a camera like the G3, like Paul was talking about, uh, really resist the urge to use it too much without getting it replaced. There are kits you can buy online where the seals are pre-cut and ready to go. I've always found it 
much more economically feasible to just make my own. You can go to anywhere in the world, any arts and crafts, fabric store, hobby store, go to the fabric section, and they will almost certainly have adhesive backed black felt or even adhesive backed thin foam. Uh, I see Raphael's holding up. It looks like a kit. What, what are you holding there, Raphael? Uh, a Nikon FA kit and a Nikon F90 kit. <laughs> and where did you get that? Just uh, online, but it's from USA Cam US Camera. Um, I think it was a Facebook page. I mean, uh, eBay. Yeah, US Camera has kits for all those things. You can also just buy, you know, as Mike says, the, they come in different thicknesses. I buy them from Hugo Studio. He sells a like an eight by ten inch sheet or five by seven inch sheet of the backed foam in different thicknesses. And it's like three dollars or something. Yeah, and you can make you can make. 20 to 30 different, you know, camera seal kits. You know, in my experience, Paul mentioned the thickness of the material. That is far more important than the shape of it. You know, you might think, oh, I, I don't know if I could cut it to that exact dimensions. Honestly, as long as it's roughly the same shape as the old stuff, I mean, unless you're a stickler for looking original OEM because you're going to enter it into some kind of camera show or something. If you're a user and you just want to use it, uh, like when I cut my door seals, I just guesstimate. And as long as you're not gratuitously too big or too small, it's going to work fine. But getting the right thickness is definitely the most important because you go too thick and sometimes the door won't close and then it doesn't seal at all. In the case of SLRs, which we're not talking SLRs, but uh, SLRs have a mirror bumper that usually those kits, Ra Raphael, yours probably has a mirror bumper in there. And while that doesn't have anything to do with light protection, it does help dampen the mirror. And if you don't get the right thickness material for that, that can cause issues with the mirror too. But uh, definitely get the kits or the product made specifically for the right camera cut it to the right thickness. You could buy the pre-made kits, but you know, to save money, especially if you're the kind of person that goes to a lot of different models, cutting your own is, isn't that much harder. Just getting back onto the G3, the, the one thing that I actually find difficult with that particular camera is it's, I believe it's actually shutter priority, uh, shutter speed priority. And, and to me, that just feels counterintuitive from a point and shoot point of view. It just feels like it's the wrong way around for me. I know other people think otherwise, so I'm not going to say my, my way is right. I tend to think in aperture priority, which is why I'd probably lean towards the Electro. So when you talk about those G3s, you've got to talk about the Yashica Electro uh, series as well, because they're, they're a point and shoot, which, which kind of sort of fall into the same mode. And then you start to look at the Olympus XA-E2s and XA-3s and so on, which, which again, are, are something that you just sort of put a rough estimate of what yeah, what you're shooting, and then it takes care of the rest for you. So I have a question along those lines. Would you consider a Mamiya 7 a point-and-shoot since it has the automatic shutter? Look, a Mamiya 7 is the best camera in the world, so it can handle any category. <laughs> Did Theo pay you for that question? No, I, I was wondering because I, I believe they also have the TTL um, light meter. I mean, not light meter, but uh, flash metering as well. Yeah. I think they're one of the only medium format cameras to have that technically it's a point and shoot camera but i think it violates spirit of this discussion <laughs> never because if we're going to get into that we're going to get into the g the six by nine gsws uh there's there's that is a that is a rabbit hole bigger than us having a zeiss icon episode but there is a legit 
contender in there and I just sold it, which is the GA six four five ZI. Yeah, that's that's getting closer to a to a real point and shoot. Absolutely. It's medium format. Yeah, I'd say that that's I agree that's a contender because there aren't too many medium format point and shoots. So it's autofocus, auto exposure, had all the settings. DX coded. Yeah, I mean it does it all. Not DX coded, but wait, the GA oh the Z. The Z was uh it was uh DX coded. The GA645 wasn't the Z and ZI, ZI or ZI2 was a DX. And isn't it true that on, only Fuji films had the DX? It, call, it They didn't even call it DX coding. It was like Fuji's version of that, right? Yeah, it was their, their coding. Uh... Right. So Fuji created their own similar system to DX film like you see in 35 millimeter. But instead of it being on the, because there's no cassette. You know, DX coding are those little silver squares on a 35 millimeter cassette. What Fuji, <clears throat> what Fuji did was they had a barcode that they printed on the leader of the paper on 120 film. And then there was an optical sensor inside the film compartment. Paul, you mentioned something. I understood what you meant, but maybe you could explain it for anybody listening who doesn't understand. You mentioned that Canonat, you really need the wine cell. Why is that important? The voltage is slightly different on the battery. The uh, the uh, original battery was a PX13, which was a, a mercury cell. And I believe it was 1.35, and the current batteries are 1.5. So there would be, uh, the meter would be slightly off. I mean, I'm not saying that you really, it would you would even notice it, but it's possible. If you're shooting transparencies, it, it would be more of an issue. But with negatives or black and white uh, or color negatives, you probably wouldn't see it. Um, there, a wean cell is a, a zinc air battery, zinc zinc air battery and uh, it is the correct voltage for the camera the, the downside to them is they're relatively expensive and they don't last so matt what about you what uh what's your what uh, your matt loves cameras what uh what's your point and shoot i'm i'm matt loves cameras and uh i, I love point and shoots I've, I've sort of shot with all slrs and stuff in the past i've, I've got a beautiful collection of, of cameras here probably my probably my favorite uh, is this one here the contacts t3 it's got a beautiful uh zeiss lens on it um, this is the single tooth model. I actually bought what I thought was the double tooth, uh, a seller in Japan said it was double tooth. It was single tooth. And guess what happened after about three rolls? One of the teeth broke off. Correct. So now, uh, to shoot with my, you know, what costs, uh, 1700 us dollars at the time, I use a $2 roll of masking tape. And when you put the film in, you've got to put a bit of masking tape, uh, between the film leader and the take up spool. Uh, for the camera to work, which is pretty crazy, but it actually worked. But in terms of uh, actual images, like image quality, that is definitely my favorite. I've got another 10 here. I just don't know how long you want me to talk for, though. What's the cheapest one you have? The cheapest one? <laughs> oh, I've got loads of cheapies. I mean, if anyone ever wants a cheap point and shoot, though, I say you can't go past the Canon. The Canon made a fantastic range of point and shoots. This is not the cheapest, by the way. I mean, there's the I've got the Owl here. Oh no, sorry, the Sure Shot AF7, which was also called the Owl because it's got this ginormous viewfinder, which is, I think it's the same viewfinder here as, as the Prima AS1, the waterproof one. Canon point and shoots generally from the 90s and early 2000s, they're all great. I mean, they're not, I don't think they ever made a, a real premium point and shoot Canon, but Canon point and shoots, if you want a cheap and cheerful one, you can't go past them. Excellent. I, I, I agree. That, that's, those are both good choices. Matt, how is it that your Canon is not yellow? Which, which cannon? The that uh, all weather rugged one, the tough. Oh, this one. Whatever the yeah, mine's very yellowed. Oh, really? The Minolta's were yellow. The cannons were always the yeah. The cannons 
Yeah, gray, gray, red. Yeah. Oh, the Aqua Snappy. Ah, uh, yep. Well, they the follow up to the Aqua Snappy was called the A One, I think, right? And that that was white. Yes, the Aqua Snappy was that one, the one Mike's holding up. It was that an AS Six. Yeah, AS Six. This was the first one, and then the A One came after this one. And there was another one that was uh, weather resistant, but not weather, not waterproof. Yeah, so there's another one that looks like this. this is the Prima AS1, which is, I think it also sold as a short shot A1 in North America. And there was a follow-up one to this, which actually had more red here called the WP1. And instead of there being- That was waterproof. Yeah, it was waterproof, but you couldn't really put it underwater. And the, the key thing to notice there is on the dial here, there's, you can't see, but there's a little fish there on the dial. On the one with the red there, there's a flower on there. So that's a bit of an indicator, you know, shoot flowers, not fish with that one. And I've used this underwater too. I mean, I wasn't scuba diving, but I took it to a water park with my family. So I went down water slides with it, uh, swam in a pool, you know, so I probably never went more than two feet underwater. But it, the results are really quite good. It's This is a five element lens. The one thing you have to be aware of, and this applies to any underwater camera, not just this one, but the focus range does change when you're underwater. Like you cannot focus this to infinity underwater. H hence the fish mode. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm with Matt on that one. I've got the, I think it's the A1 and I use it underwater and it is a hell of a lot of fun. It's a lot easier than bringing the Nikonos down because if, if you basically just point and you literally point and shoot but one thing people don't realize with those a1s is they are extremely good above water as well those lenses are actually really really good i i, I use it as a normal compact and it's it's just a lot of fun because it's easy and you get really good results out of them nikon's equivalent was the action touch i don't really it was only good down to like four feet or five feet it was a follow-up to this wasn't it the l35 yeah the action touch was 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 twice the weight it was just a much bigger camera but yes it was the, it was the follow-up which one is that Raphael? is that the the ap wp or the a1 it's the a1 but mine's uh decidedly grayer as uh the plastic is aged and weathered so that's why i just thought they all were sort of this weird cream color <laughs> My, mine's kind of cream it's probably just the light we get this ozone protection here so we kind of stays white i suppose but this um prima as1 or the a1 as it's called in north america that was used by fred herzog the canadian photographer i think he used a lot of likers but then he switched to one of these at some stage i think it was because i think i read i, I hope this is correct but i think he read that when he was shooting with it, people just thought it was a toy and didn't take him very seriously now matt one one camera that I'm interested in seeing you pulling out is your Fuji. Is it Tiara or is it? I, I don't have a Tiara. I've got the Natura though. The Natura, that's it. This is the one. I took this to Sydney last year and uh, everyone around the table was like, wow, what is this? So this is a, the Fujifilm Natura F1.9. It's got a lovely sort of early 2000s screen on the back, which is either green or orange. And, uh, you know, the thing about this is it's got one of the fastest lenses ever for point and shoot F1.9. You can't shoot in aperture priority. However, if you do load uh, ISO 1600 film or faster, uh, it will shoot at f1.9 automatically. So that's the only way you can shoot wide open with this camera. But yeah, I love this camera. I love shooting uh, with, you know, fast film at, uh, at dusk at nighttime with this. Am I remembering correctly? 
Doesn't that camera have a mode that only works when you use Natura 1600 film? It's it's basically, with this model, it's ISO 1600 or more. It's called natural photo mode. Now, if you have the zoom model, which is the Fujifilm uh, Natura Classica, it works from 800 speed and up. But with this fixed uh, lens one, it's 1600 and up, and it's called natural photo mode. There's a lot of I think, misinformation about it. People think that it, it does add some exposure compensation to the images when you shoot in natural photo mode. If you look at one of the manuals, zone and you translate it from Japanese to English automatically because I don't read Japanese it does say in there it adds up to two stops uh, exposure compensation uh, when you shoot at f1.9 but a lot of people will just say oh it adds two stops exposure compensation like automatically but the Japanese manual I translated said it, it kind of assesses the scene and it can add up to two stops and I in my tests shooting with natural photo mode not natural photo mode it, there wasn't really that much difference so I think it just depends on the scene now you had mentioned one of the fastest lenses now Canon what was that Canon model Paul that had the one nine lens 1.9 Okay. Is that okay? He's he's gotten right there too, Matt. <laughs> I have thirty-five ml. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sure shot. Yep. Now that one I do have, and one thing I, I, two things I don't like about it. One, it offers no manual. Theo's got one too. But in addition to it not having manual control, there's no way to force the camera to open all the way, other than if it just happens to find that right combination, whatever programmed auto exposure is in the camera and you have no way of knowing if it's even doing it either so it, it sounds cool at least on that specific camera to see this big beautiful piece of blue coated glass on the front of a of a point and shoot it, it's certainly stunning looking uh i i like having mine to sit on a shelf but it, it's it's not as practical as you think it if it otherwise functions like any other auto shot from that era it's just maybe under the right circumstances in a dingy bar with the light reflecting the right way maybe you might get it to shoot at one nine but even if it did you would never know well the other part of the other thing i really never you know the sure shots were revolutionary they were like the ae1 because they really they, they were in every they were in a lot of households and they took a lot of family pictures the thing i didn't like was it was noisy it's that is the loudest motor. It was one of the first that had the built-in film advance, and uh, the film advance on it was it was very loud. Mind you, it's not as loud. I have shown this one before, so I'll only do it for a brief second. The practi. The practi. It's not allowed. Yeah. The practi. One of the first effective point and shoots. <laughs> that, that one's like construction equipment grinding rock while it's advancing film. East Germany's answer to a discreet easy to use point and shoot now a good tip that i think most if not all early autofocus cameras had knowing that the film advance was very noisy and most of them if let's say you were in a situation where you wanted to be a little bit quieter you can press the shutter release and hold it down and keep your finger on the shutter release the exposure will be made fine so by holding down the shutter release, you're not ruining your exposure, but by keeping your finger on the shutter release prevents it from advancing the film. And then you can like take the camera, stick it in your pocket or under your coat or something, and then let your finger off the button and then it'll advance. 
doesn't completely make it go away, but it is an option you have to make it a little bit more discreet where you can kind of hide the noise it's going to make when it goes to the next frame. What do you got there, Paul? At a certain point, the manufacturers decided they needed to put zoom lenses on the camera. So you get that go out. This is actually a 38 to 105. But some of the manufacturers like Olympus that really specialized in these cameras came up with some special models. This one is covered in, in burgundy leather, LT-105. So it's a 38 to 105 zoom. And it has the little, when you turn it off, the lens retracts, and then you've got a snap-on lens cap. That's cool. Pretty. So we've covered some of the fastest lens point-and-shoots. Um, that, that Fuji Natura is one that I'd, I'd really like to try, but prices on it are um, are quite high. Mike, what was that funny little uh, Fuji that had the, the two lens, the, the lens that rotated? You happen to have one there, uh... It's, it's one of the ones I set aside. It's the TW3. So um, what's cool about this is, so it, okay, so it's, it's kind of like that Rico that Andrew was talking about at the beginning, where you have two choices of focal length. You have wide, which is 23 millimeter. Oh, it's a half frame camera too, by the way. Uh, the wide is 23 millimeter and the telly is 69 millimeter. So, you know, again, you have to adjust that for, for half frame versus full frame. But you switch by rotating a ring around the front. Now, ironically, that doesn't move the lens. The lenses themselves stay in the exact same location. But what's really weird, and there's no way I'll be able to show this, you just got to check out my review for this camera. When you switch between wide and tele, in wide mode, the back of the lens is lined up straight with the film plane. So you take your picture through the wide angle lens, light passes through the lens, through the shutter, hits your film plane, exposes your film. But when you switch it to tele mode, there's actually a reflex mirror that moves into place and it redirects the light from the tele lens, which is not in front of the film plane. And the light kind of bounces through the mirror to go from the tele lens to the wide angle lens. A couple things about this camera. It's very small. It's almost like a, almost a perfect square. Uh, having the two focal lengths is pretty neat. Two things about it though. It's one of those cameras that came out at the dawn of the lithium battery era. So Fuji put in a soldered non-user replaceable battery in here. You can replace it. You just got to open the camera up and know how to desolder, find the right replacement and solder it back in, which I did do. It's not that hard to do. I do have instructions on how to do it on my site because pretty much any one of these you're going to find today, there's no way that original battery has a charge left on it. But the other thing, and in, in that sort of a, a, a penalty, I guess, for having the dual focal lengths is it resulted in a viewfinder that's incredibly tiny. If you can picture a uh, uh, a 1940s, early 50s Kodak Retina, you know, where the, the viewfinder is slightly larger than a piece of rice. I would say this is it's this is bigger than a Retina's viewfinder, but not by much. So for a camera from the mid mid, I think this came out in 88, maybe I can't remember. I ha I'm talking about my own review and I don't remember what it is. Yeah. OK, so Tim Peters is holding up a Retina. And the viewfinder on the back of it is about the same size as on this Fuji. So it is quite painful to use when shooting. And, and in my opinion, that's kind of what destroys it. I actually wished, so this is called the TW3. And it was the only model of, in this series they made. I, I really would have loved it if maybe they had a TW1 model that, la that omitted the tele lens and was only the wide angle and had maybe a larger straight through viewfinder. Had they been able to do that, but in the same form factor, half frame, uh, it's also vertically traveling half frame too. 
And what that means is that because the film transports up and down instead of side to side, in half frame, the natural orientation of the camera is landscape. Whereas uh, like an Olympus pen or most half frame cameras, the natural orientation is portrait. I, I find these vertically traveling half frame cameras to be great users. And, and I do like the ergonomics of it. I love the size, but the, a combination of anytime you find one having to open it up and solder in a new battery. And then even after you do that, there's a very, very small viewfinder somewhat ruins, or at least in my opinion, mostly ruins um, the usability of it. Well, well, speaking of batteries, I mean, the, the compact manufacturers were trying all sorts of things. Uh, one of the cameras I've come up with recently is the Canon Del Sol, which is the camera that you actually has a solar panel on it. So you could actually charge it up with a solar panel. I unfortunately got it in the other room at the moment because I've got near a window trying to charge it up. I have a suspicion I might have to change the rechargeable battery in it. It's uh, it's a, yeah, it, it holds a charge for about two shots and then sort of dies. They were trying all sorts of things. I mean, the Del Sol, though, is a really weird one, though, because if you think about it, you're actually putting it in the sunlight so you can actually charge it up while you've got your film in the camera, which we know how that well that works. Canon thought of that to some degree, and I don't know if you know this, Theo, but there is actually an overheat protection that that camera has where the screen will actually pop up automatically and separate itself from the rest of the camera to allow ventilation to kind of get, I don't know how effective it is, but that was sort of like their acknowledgement of, hey, we created a camera that needs to be placed in direct sunlight to be powered. Uh, but what happens if it bakes in the the Sydney sun? I, I actually came across that yesterday because I actually did put it outside yesterday and I had to go pick up my car. And halfway there, I, I rang up my son and said, Hey, can you go grab the camera from outside? Because it is like 30 degrees plus here today. And I started having visions of the plastic melting and stuff like that because the sun was just brutal. So, so yeah, it, it's it's a really weird one in that sense. Now, Paul, you recently had one, right? Did you get a chance to play with it? I did. And it, yeah, it, uh, it actually took a charge uh, for about 20 shots. I sold it a few days ago. And and I I pointed the guy on your on your website uh, in your review you have detailed instructions on how to replace those batteries which uh, which I use to sell it <laughs> which I'll be following yeah it's just like the Fuji I mentioned you have to open it up and desolder there was one additional step and I'm going off memory here because I did this like four years ago but there was actually a bracket that's soldered onto the original battery that you need to actually connect the new battery to the camera. So you have to desolder this bracket off of the original battery and then reuse it. Or, you know, if you have a machine lathe, you know, or something, maybe you could fabricate something new. Uh, wink, wink, Tim. You, you do need to reuse one of the parts off of the original battery. But what's funny is, and I can't remember the model. Again, it's in my article, but the battery you need to buy is the exact same kind used in like a brawn rechargeable razor or something. So whatever kind of, I think back when these cameras are first being made, now the, the, the Fuji is a lithium non-rechargeable battery. So when that thing dies, it's dead. But at least the Canon's was meant to be recharged. And that camera came out in the 90s. So like you've seen, Theo and Paul, there is at least hope that you can find one of those and they may still hold a small amount of charge and still be usable. But if you do end up replacing yours, which is what I did, I, I have it on the top shelf, so I, I don't want to dig it out. But I, I actually saw it 
not too long ago and it still was looked fully charged from the last time I used it. So you replace that battery and it'll hold a charge for quite a while. And I've seen some results with the photos taken with that, that camera um, just recently here in Australia, actually. And uh, they are very nice. It's back to the, the auto shop cannons. You know, it, even their cheapest auto point and shoot auto shots generally had pretty good optics. So, you know, the, the solar panel is a little gimmicky. It looks cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a camera that I have no problem recommending to people just to put on a shelf if you want to use it, great. But at once you get past the solar panel part of it, it's just a fairly normal Canon uh, auto shot from that era, which, which, which is a compliment. Those cameras were very nice. Yeah, which sort of lends, you know, leads us into the discussion of the, the Zoom ones. I think, Paul, you mentioned the Zooms earlier. But it's not all about the fast lenses and the, the premium copies. I mean, there were just millions upon millions of these compacts made. Nikon had their, uh, yeah, there it is in front of me, a light touch. These things, I mean, this is like a 38 to 140 zoom, pretty slow in terms of lens. But the quality you got, the advancements they made in the lens technology at that point are pretty amazing because... Uh, I, I must admit, I love using it. It's convenient. You just stick the splash on if it's a bit low in light. And and the results, you, you still capture your memories. The first dual lens cameras were in either or. And generally, they were a 35 or 70 or a 35 or 80. And then they came out with what they call zooms. But they weren't really truly zooms. They were they, if you measure them, you can't stop them where you want to. They're going to have probably a, like a 35 to 105 or 38 to 105 would actually have five, four or five position where you could stop it within within that 38 to 105 range. You couldn't stop it at, at uh, 52 millimeters. You had to stop it. It stopped where it wanted to uh, whenever you let off the button, but it, you couldn't really get a true zoom uh, type type capability. Well, and they, they used uh, the wide depth of field. You know, usually a, a, a camera like that, a lot of times the early ones had 38 or 35 millimeter lenses. So they already had a natural wide um, depth of field, but then they were usually pretty slow too. A lot of the earlier zoom cameras had like F4, F4.5 lenses, which also maximized it. So do you think they, they learned a lot from you know, the, the Olympus XA series where that was the, the start of, the, you know, these lenses, which were small and wide and could capture everything and, and advanced based on that. Mark Faulkner's got one there at the moment. Well, you know, the, the problem became that the autofocus systems themselves had to improve in order to be able to get the telephoto zooms. They, they started out with uh, one type system, then they went to a contrast detection and, and that worked fine until you get into low light and then you had slow lenses. So as autofocus technology became better, the ability to have longer lenses became a lot more, a lot easier. And then you reach the ultimate when you got into the Olympus IS series, you know, the bridge cameras uh, that had zooms out to 200 millimeters. And they were excellent. I mean, the, the lens quality and the really good. I just pushed out a review of the IS2. For my money, honestly, if you find someone who wants to get into film photography and they're new and they want like a point and shoot camera, but maybe they're more familiar with like a DSLR, you know, they want a through the lens type camera, the, the Olympus IS series, all of them. I had the two. Uh, a lot of people told me the three is even better. It has a wider range of zoom. The autofocus is faster. It's it's a fantastic camera. And it has a really good and very usable macro mode, which for a camera that's meant for basically consumers, a consumer SLR fixed lens, so you can't change the lens at all. 
It is technically a bridge camera. So the shape of the camera is a little odd. The way that the film loads into it and transports, I think is kind of strange, but the, the, it's one of those cameras that you can truly just give to someone that knows nothing about photography, put it in program mode and they're going to get 24 out of 24 good shots from it. And Olympus supported it. I mean, they made all kinds of really amazing accessories uh, for that, a a complete flash. The built-in flash is one of the best pop-up flashes I've ever seen. It's very good. There's There's actually two bulbs. There's two separate bulbs. So when you pop up the flash on it, again, I have a picture on my site, but it, it's like a stepped flash that allows it to, to work at both far away and close up. You can use the flash in macro mode and it won't overpower what you're taking a picture of. Yeah, that's an excellent choice, Mike. And the, the thing is too, they're dirt cheap. Yep. They, they're just, they're basically nothing but peanuts. I mean, they're $49 for a, a good condition. Yeah. IS2 or IS3. I like a point and shoot. It's a it's an SLR point and shoot, but I would defend that as being a point and shoot camera because it truly is. You can shoot it in full manual mode. The one caveat I would say is if you go on eBay and you're thinking of picking one up, some of the later models were made for APS film. So you're going to want to avoid those. Mm-hmm. But um, any any of the 35 millimeter, they had the IS one, two, three. Uh, it's one of those cameras where outside of North America, they had a different name. So that kind of gets a little confusing. And then they had, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there like a 100, 200, 300? Yeah, 30, 20, 30, and a 200, yeah. The whole series gets a little confusing. The The single digit one, two, and three, I agree with you, Paul. The the they the prices on them have not begun to, to escalate like certain cameras have. And, and I really, really like the shots I got from, from mine. Should we all go buy a whole bunch of them now to preempt it? Well, it's funny because I I bought mine as a result of someone on this show talking about it. I, it was one of our earlier episodes. Somebody came on and was raving about them. Stephen Dowling. It could have been. And, th- you know, Theo, you got me to buy the Hey King Helena uh, <laughs> one. But then I also got... The, the Olympus IS3. And in the more the last episode, I talked about getting the Yashiko YF. So, you know, I fall prey to my, through this show's gas. We are not immune. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick. Somebody mentioned earlier that Canon never really got into the premium point and shoots. And while I'll agree that's true, they did have this one model that was clearly inspired by the Olympus XA series. It was called the Canon MC. It's a, a very compact this one's autofocus though, but it's got that kind of clamshell design where the power switch is a sliding door that you open and close uh, and that'll power the camera on. And then they, they you could have a, a detachable flash that screws onto the side. So this was, uh, I think, a little bit more expensive. You know, anytime you make something smaller, it somewhat adds to the cost of it. it looks like, Matt, you have one too. Yeah, I think this is a later one. This is the, um, the short shot sleek. Um, okay. so there's two, two different models of this one and this one's got a similar kind of uh, you know, the nice little button there, it opens up and it's it's a nice little camera. It's got an F uh, 3.5 lens. But again, I, I think this is about as premium as as these two, you know, the smaller ones are about as premium as Canon ever got. You know, and, and, and I don't mean to rip on Canon because I do like a lot of their models. But one thing they, in my opinion, have never done well is in from the design standpoint, you, you can't look at a Canon and tell that's a better Canon. A lot of other companies usually like they would do something like a better material or they would give it a neater, you know, something to differentiate a premium Nikon from a consumer grade Nikon. But like, especially in the EOS series, 
like they all looked the same to me from five feet away behind the counter at Paul's camera shop. If there was a lineup of Canon SLRs and point and shoots, it, it would not be easy to identify which ones are the better models over the cheaper ones. And I don't know that that really hurt them by any means, because clearly Canon's done well for themselves, but just kind of an observation that it's not always obvious which Canons are premium. You know, and then it reached the point where late in the 35 millimeter point and shoot game, which would have been just before APS came out, the Koreans started making cameras and the quality and the, the styles and everything that they made, the Samsung AF Slim. Matt, do you have one of those in your collection, an AF Slim? I, I don't know. Okay, it's a tiny little thing. It's it uh, it's smaller probably than an XA, but it's it's squared off. It's a rectangle, of course, but a very tiny camera. They made them in different colors, including a, a one that was an off-white. It was just a beautiful little camera. And the, the quality was just was really, really good. And of course, they, they made the Roly Prego camera. Well, well, Samsung owned Roly from, I think, 96 to 99. Right. And they had Schneider lenses. Right. They didn't own Schneider. The, the relationship was a bit confusing, but Samsung owned Roly. But then Roly had some kind of agreement, a partnership where they were able to use Schneider lenses. So you can get that, the the slim that Paul's talking about. They made one SLR called the SR4000 that also came with Schneider lenses. But uh, that was a short-lived period of Samsung's camera making history. Konica also had some nice cameras. The little, uh, the BM210, I believe, I, I actually have one. I bought one for my mother-in-law. That's a that's a nice little camera. Matt Matt's holding one up there. Yeah, the big minis. It's just nice. Big minis. It's like it's just a beautiful little camera. It's like so smooth and rounded edges, and it, it takes really good um, images. Again, Konica never brought out one where you could choose the aperture, but still lovely cameras. Is that a twenty-eight millimeter wide on that, Matt? It is. Oh gosh, uh, it's a 20, 30, 35 f three point five. Mike is holding up an, a Hexar. The Hexar. So you can choose you. You can choose the aperture on this one. The dial right on top has the numbers on it. This is the optional flash that it came with. Kyle has one as well. Yeah, I, I go in two, so yeah, you still one. The shutter speed's pretty slow. Isn't it one two fiftieth is the top shutter speed? Is that right? Yeah, that's that is without a doubt the biggest weakness of this camera is that it tops out at one two fifty, which is a shame because otherwise it's got an f two 35 millimeter lens. I think six element might be seven. I can't remember. Uh, the viewfinder is is very good. Uh, you know, it displays the focus distance in there. Kyle, have you shot your Hexar? Sure. Describe the sound it makes when you fire the shutter. Yeah, let me try it. <laughs> well, you can't hear it. That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, super quiet. Some of the models had silent mode, which was a hidden feature. This one has that feature, but even with it off, it's still one of the quietest shutters. I've, I've you you can't tell it's firing. Like they almost need to like give it a beep or something. Like beep, there should be an audio confirmation mode that the shutter actually fired. Because when you're so used to hearing some kind of noise, uh, this thing is quiet. Is that a a rangefinder? I know there was the RF and the AF, but is that AF one? Is that an automatic rangefinder? No, there's no rangefinder at all. This is okay. a true point and shoot. There's, there okay, there cool. was a rangefinder model. Model, yeah. Uh, which was gratuitously more expensive, but Paul, not any better. Oh, it was a well, it was it like a mount. I mean, it was that's a, right. It was, a, it was a totally different camera. It was like that's the right. yeah, yeah it, it was that one was a really good camera too. But the XR was that to me is the best. Uh, I I actually had one of those 
I was a Konica dealer. And before they brought those into the U.S., for some reason or other, they sent us one. And and I latched onto it and I carried it in my briefcase and, and shot with it for probably 15 years. Uh, it was just a wonderful camera. Now, if the Konica Hexar is their best ever point and shoot, for anybody who knows me, what is the worst Konica point and shoot? The A-Borg. The A-Borg. That thing is an absolute abomination. Uh, it, it looks weird, and I think that's what appeals to some people. That's what attracted me to it. I've, I've frequently talked about my gripes with that camera, so I won't repeat it too much here. For a company that was able to do the Hexar, which is so wonderful, plus, I mean, Konica made plenty of really cool cameras. Uh, that AI Borg was a just complete stinker. Since you're on Konica, though, can I throw in my contribution, which is... Yeah, go ahead. Are these guys. The Kentabakus. Yeah. These are great. I mean, as point and shoot, right? You're not going to control aperture or anything. But I do love the tactile feedback, sort of uh, be able to use the camera without looking at it. And, uh, you know, you can carry it around a, any environment and not really worry about what happens to it. It's a construction camera. Uh, they In Japan, they were called Kent. I can't say it. Kentabaku. Kenba Kentoku. It's Kenba Kentoku. Yes. And the, that they're construction cameras. They're made for to take out on job sites and uh, and take pictures. And I I agree. I I love those cameras. They're they're very industrial looking, but the, the quality is excellent. Fuji made a, a series of them. I remember completely off topic, but I used to have a part-time job working for Best Buy and I remember Panasonic had a series of job site laptops that were similar they were like like four inches thick full of like armor and rubber corners and such like that so uh i th that's that clearly was a niche for a while there was job site you know rugged you know they you, you can't scuba dive with them but i mean they could handle getting rained on or splashed or something like that so very very cool cameras and them being Konica's and fuji's and such you're gonna have decent lenses so uh, when they're clean, they're, they're going to make some really nice photos as well. I'm an architect by trade. And uh, my thought was, is that they probably wouldn't slump on the, you know, go chintzy on the glass because some of this documentation on the job site is probably used in litigation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they got to be good. Uh, AJ, we haven't heard from you. So uh, Mr. 5 by 7 field camera, what kind of point and shoots you have for us? <laughs> i've got i've actually there's a few here that i got i inherited from family members were um i think it was uh theo who held up a uh, brownie i've got a hawkeye there you go all right from uh my my mentor my uncle bob <laughs> have you flipped the lens on it not yet i ha i do have 620 rolls behind me uh, that i have to re-spool some 120 on uh to try it out uh, he's he used it uh, recently uh, in the last year, and he said it was working fine. I, how about the uh, can? Well, we're talking about Canon Sure Shots. I've got one here that I inherited from my grandfather a few years back. Which one is that? This is the uh, Sure Shot Tele. Uh, I don't know what. Well, no, wait a minute. Hold on, I do know. It has a forty seventy zoom. So and it has a soft filter on it. That's cool. It is an absolutely brilliant camera, and it also does multiple exposures. Yeah. So if you want a point and shoot that does multi exposures, this is your beast. It's 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 a great camera. Oh, is that what that is? I thought that was memory exposure. Okay, 
Yeah, so I've actually done uh, double exposures uh, with this camera, same camera you got. It's called the the multi the Shot Tele, also known as the Top Twin. The Shot Tele shouldn't be confused with the half frame one, which is the multi Tele. This is the Shot Tele we've got here. Okay, but it's a great camera. Yeah, you, I've done loads of double exposures with it, but I understand you can just hold the button in and just do like you know triple quadruple exposures if you want. It's it's a really great. It's very clunky, but it's it's a great camera. So I still have to try that one out. Matt, can you explain real quick the multi-tele? It's, it does half frame and full frame? It does. So the multi-tele is one that has been uh, fettered, uh, celebrated by many people in the film photography community. It's a it's a Canon point and shoot. I've got one up there with a busted battery door I haven't got with me. But you can, there's a little thing. When you open up the back to put the film in, there's a little yellow button and you can slide it across to either shoot the whole roll with half frame or the whole roll with full frame. You can't obviously, you know, get into the back of the camera halfway through a roll and uh, decide you want to shoot half frame from then on. I've never, it's actually got two lenses as well. This is one thing people don't talk about. It's actually got, it's got the two Canon lenses. It switches between a standard and a more telephoto lens. However, uh, a lot of people love it and go on about it. I've, I've got one and I've never really gelled with it for some reason. I'm not sure why. Literally just uh, close the slides to go get the half frame then. It, it's actually a weird camera. Yeah, you, you sort of choose your half frame or your full frame when you put the film in. And the, the other weird thing about that camera, which I haven't mentioned, this is the multi-tele, the, the half frame one. It actually, the, the lens cover is always closed except for when it's taking the picture. It's the most bizarre thing. So the lens only ever pops out like a cuckoo clock when it's taking the picture, then it goes back in and hides. It's, it's really kind of, it's cute and weird, but yeah, it's bizarre. I can imagine those plastic gears uh, don't hold up after decades. Well, it's actually the battery door for me. I've got a gaffer tape mine shut, um, which is a real pain. It still works. It's just the yeah the battery door, like some of the early Canons. I've also got a Nikon uh, L35AF. That's a good one. Over here. This is my uncle's favorite. I've got it now for a while to, to kind of store for him it's one of my it's one of my favorite compacts aj it it, it, it uh, especially yours looks like it's the early one with the sonar lens they are very very good the first version had a sonar the the other two did not to be fair though i have the third version it was called the nikon one touch i think af3 which is just a four element but i, I the images were great you know i don't i don't feel like i'm missing by not having the sonar but you're your point, though, Theo, that the sonar one is is definitely more desirable. The the, the other one had, went to ASA one thousand. That's this one here. Yep, the, those were those were the uh, the the highest end. Yeah, I, I just checked it before, and it's a it's an f two point eight thirty five millimeter. It's a fantastic, beautiful, fantastically beautiful little camera, uh, portable. More recently, more newer, I also have uh, my first half frame camera, which is just a Kodak Ektar. Uh, H35. This one here, I also let the kids use. We had someone talk about that in a previous episode, and uh, turns out that thing's nicer than it looks. Yeah, and it, it, it's it. I'm I'm pretty impressed with. It. I mean, for something as as small and simple, that it has a, it has its own automatic flash, uh, which runs on a AAA battery. I mean, for you know, we're just snapping. You know, somebody was talking about uh, leaving a camera in the car. I mean, that's one of them. Um, I've got a couple of the Harman uh, Instamatics uh, that I got for each of the younger of my kids uh, to start them off on film photography. What else? Oh, and I also have a, um, well, obviously the Spark Sprocket Rocket. Would that be considered a point and shoot? Sure. Why not? Uh, yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> I see, I see, I see Raphael's face there. <laughs> we we got to limit it somewhere. So, so AJ, so let me understand this, AJ. You want to get your kids into film photography, 
but you're not putting him straight onto five by seven. Not yet. Although, believe me, they're they're every time I take it out, they're always chasing me down trying to. See. That's a little bit more sensitive. <laughs> but my son, my son's gotten pretty good with macro photography now for his Legos. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he shoots a lot of his uh, Lego setups after he's done each of the kits. Okay, I got a I got a segue. Sorry to interrupt. You said macro. We're talking point and shoots and macro. There's the GoCo Macro Max. I have one of those new in the box, Mike, if you need another one. No, I have one in the box too. I just, it's still in the, it's in the crypt. Yeah, too. I found one today and wondered about it because I don't, I don't remember that camera. Now they made a, but GoCo was a, they're a Japanese company. My understanding is that they initially started off uh, trying to appeal to emerging markets. So a lot of these cameras were sold in India. They were marketed in China. They did eventually make it out West to Europe and to North America, but a majority of GoCo, it's G-O-K-O, a majority of their cameras have a macro mode and there's three modes. So it's a zone focus camera. You can see on the front, there's a red, yellow, and green range. So you've moved the slider and it moves the lens between the three ranges. N, which is green, is anywhere from 3.3 meters to infinity. So roughly 10 feet to infinity. Uh, yellow is anywhere from one meter to 3.3 meters. And then red is one meter to 0.3 meters. And while you can use the camera in any of the three modes, in the closest mode, when you bought the camera new, it came with a uh, little thing that attaches to the bottom and it's basically a wireframe. And what the wireframe does is it, it extends to the exact focal point at what you're focusing on and it also frames it out. So if I had a picture of a flower or something I wanted to take a macro picture of, you just hold the camera and line, and you don't even need to look at the viewfinder. You just line up the frame that's protruding out of the front of the camera, and then you just press the shutter release and it'll be perfectly in focus. The flash is coupled to the focus distance, so it'll give you properly exposed flash. In fact, I don't even think you can turn the flash off in the close modes. I could be wrong on that, but I remember there being a trick with the flash on this camera. This thing is light. I mean, it is pure plastic. It looks cheap. It feels gimmicky, but holy cow, it works really well. I mean, no, it's not going to recreate, you know, an, a Nikkor 55 millimeter micro Nikkor lens, you know, a, a proper macro setup. But for a point and shoot camera that does macro photography up to 0.3 meters away, which is slight, like a 10, 11 inches for a point and shoot, it works incredibly well. And you can use that flash too? Yeah. Uh-huh. So otherwise it's a point and shoot camera. I mean, in, in the green mode, I mean, it's, it's a slow lens. I think it's like a five, six, I can't even remember, but in good lighting, it takes decent pictures. You know, it's probably a basic triplet or something like that. I can see the purple lens coating on it. You know, it's fixed focus, I mean, not fixed, but once you move it to green, you can't change it for a basic point and shoot for a kid. It'd be great. But if you want to teach your would you say your son for shooting Legos? If for whatever reason you wanted your child to be shooting macro on film, uh, this would be the camera to get. Or if you just want to play with macro on a point and shoot, check out a Goku Macro Max. Fantastic. Definitely. Christmas is coming. Paul's going to have one for sale pretty soon. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was, the, the, that was one of the two weirdest cameras I got from Kurt. Really? The other one was an Agfa Optima uh, sensor flash which is a, a zone focus camera that has a manual film advance, thumb advance. And it's the weirdest thing I've seen. 
what happens is when you load the camera, the full roll is on the right side of the camera as you're looking at it. The full roll is under the film advance. The leader pulls out to the other side and goes into a, a little hidden trap that's in there, and it advances that way. There is no rewind knob. There's a weird button that's hidden under the flash that you push down and turn and use the film advance at that point to rewind the film back into the cassette. So the film advance both goes forward and backwards, but the same motion. Yeah, yeah, and it actually works. But, you know, it's such a goofy little camera. Uh, it uses, uh, I think, two AAA batteries. And that that's just for the flash and uh, the exposure meter. I, I thought they were just nonsense. I mean, they're going to be, you know, a, a stupid little camera. They sell for a couple hundred bucks. Because some influencer on the internet has decided it's the best camera that he's ever owned. So he's got, he, he has, he has single-handedly increased the value of the camera about 10 times what it's actually worth. I would definitely take advantage of that and get rid of it as soon as you can. I did. It didn't work. The only, and it worked great, except the film counter didn't work. I just did a, I just did an internet search on the, on the macro, uh, the macro max and, and whose article was the top. <laughs> Probably because it's probably the only one. I, I remember when I got that camera, just trying to find any information on it. Because remember, like I said, GoCo was did not market much in the United States. I think I found one reference for it in like the back of uh, Good Housekeeping magazine or something referencing it. So GoCo made was video transfer system. Yeah, they did a lot of other things besides cameras. They were they were their optics were in the uh, the video transfer systems to transfer eight millimeter movies to video. That was their whole their whole their whole thing. Tim, let's let, what do you got for us? Well, I have to confess, I haven't had the best luck in the past with point and shoots. For example, uh, the first one I attempted to use was a Konica Mister Seventy that my mom actually won on the Wheel of Fortune in 1985. What a weird camera! It has like a it has a two-position focus, um, two-position uh, lens, not focus, like we were talking about earlier. But there's this bizarre mechanism where the, the front like group moves out of the camera, like telescopes out. And then the the rear group actually just kind of slots down. It's, it's kind of strange. It's on a pivot inside the camera. Pretty overcomplicated. But the thing is, with these Mr. 70s, they're, they're kind of uh, made like a Kinder Egg toy, kind of. They fall apart. So mine just screams at you when you try and press the shutter button and flashes its light and kind of sounds like it's dying because quite frankly, it is. But that being said, although I haven't had the most luck with electronic point and shoots, I have a few here that I would consider point and shoots, but they're kind of more mechanical. First, we kind of talked about it earlier, the Olympus Pen. This is kind of one of the first modern point and shoots. This is the Pen S. This one's from circa 1960, if I remember correctly. Uh, this works amazingly. The shutter in it is a whisper, and the lens on it's pretty good. If you haven't really tried a pen, Olympus pen, you should really try one. They're really cute. Like, they're they're absolutely tiny. You could put this in your front pocket all day long, wouldn't feel a thing. So, I mean, not much else to say about this. It's kind of a uh, self-describing uh, self camera. But the one I really want to show, because this is a very controversial camera, the Nikon EM. Most people would look at this and go, it's not a point and shoot. I would say, yes, it is. There's no um, manual exposure on this beyond the M90, the mechanical 90 backup on this. I have the motor drive now that I'll take that off. But it is always in uh, aperture priority mode uh, when it's on. There's just two modes, on, which is aperture priority, and off, which is M90 or bulb. But uh, paired with its stock, uh, its kit 50 millimeter Series E Nikkor, well, not Nikkor, Nikon, uh, it's a Series E, so therefore it's not a Nikkor, uh, but paired with that lens. This can actually produce some excellent photos. 
it came out in 1979. So it's kind of actually it's, it's pre F3. So this is one of Nikon's very first auto exposure cameras. And yet they I think they nailed it on the on the first shot. This thing puts out excellently exposed images. Uh, it mounts pretty much any uh, AI lens. And I mean, it's tiny as well. You know, the size of the pen, it's barely any larger. Well, that camera, when when it first when it first was created, it had the unfortunate distinction of being marketed as the camera for women. For women, yeah. Yeah, and if you, in fact, if you go to Nikon's website, even to this very day, and the history section, they still refer to it that way. And that's not necessarily meant to be derogatory or women can't handle a real camera, but it was smaller. It was more lighter weight. To this day, I mean, even... Because remember when autofocus came out, cameras actually got larger. You know, when you look at Nikon's F lineup, the F3 was the smallest of their pro cameras. Because yeah, the F and F2, which are both pretty big, pretty big, they were able to advance the camera and shrink it down a little bit down to the F3 size. But then boom, now all of a sudden you have autofocus, auto film advance, auto everything. And then the F4, F5, and F6 just got bigger again. So the EM you said came out in 79 which was kind of that sweet spot of when they were able to start making cameras smaller, but before they had to make them bigger again to start adding all the crap back in. So um, one of the things I really love about the uh, EM, well, there's two things actually. One is its size. It's very compact. And uh, while I don't think it fits our definition of a point and shoot, I would agree with you. It's it's a very point and shoot-esque SLR and, and that you, you can shoot it one-handed. You know, you could walk around almost all day with a Series E lens, which was the smaller lens made for it. It's very lightweight. It's very, very portable. You know, hanging around a strap around your neck, it's not going to it's not going to weigh too much, but it has one feature that again was probably meant to make the camera simpler, but I really, really liked, and you just didn't see too much in other SLRs was that EV compensation button. It's a backlight button. Yeah. So there's a button on the front of the camera on some versions of the EM it's silver on others it's blue, but it's the same function. And how it works is if you're shooting something with a strong backlight, like someone standing in front of a window, you just press and hold it and it automatically gives you two extra stops of EV, which most SLRs have a dial for that. The problem with a dial or, you know, a, a menu option is you have to remember to turn it off. And how many times, you know, even the most advanced photographers mess with an EV setting and you get two, three, four, five, a dozen pictures down the line. You're like, shit, I forgot to turn it off. Whereas that's a momentary button. So the second you release it, it just goes back to zero. And I would have liked to have seen a feature like that on, on more of their cameras. Standard center weight metering they have installed, like that's always on. I think that's actually so good. I haven't even once had to use this button. It just nails exposure every time. So yes, it's nice to have, but like, wow, the meter they put in this thing is just amazing. Nikon really, they, they did call it the women's camera, but they also called them the first camera because they, they were small enough that they thought they could market them to women to, to carry in their purses. Of course, Pentax had the ME and Olympus had the OM10. And then a little bit later, Minolta had the XG1, which were all basically the similar, very similar camera. Uh, just with different lens mounts, but they were all aperture priority only with no manual controls. Yeah. And I have the, what I completely suspect to be a rehouse of the EM here. This is the Nikonos uh, 4A. These are kind of uncommon because you usually see the earlier threes and the later fives. But this, this was actually my dad's camera. He was a technical diver back in the eighties and he bought this new in 1984. If you look at the controls on this, it's exactly the same as that on the EM. 
all the behavior of this exactly the same as the EM, same flash speed, same shutter, same everything. So I suspect this is actually just a rehouse of the EM. And this is just a point shootable. It's not an SLR though. So no, this is a viewfinder. Yeah. Right. Which mm -hmm. is that's the big difference. These this takes the Nikonos mount lens. They did make a Nikonos SLR. I think it was the, the RS. RS. Yep. Yeah. The RS. Very hard to find though. The, and I have the four too. I have a two and a four, both wonderful cameras. Um, it's funny, earlier we were talking about the Aqua Snappy and, and how good those cameras are above water. And I only use my Nikonos above water. Like, I don't, to me, like for scuba diving and proper underwater photography, yeah, photography, yeah you definitely want a more capable camera. But for family fun with your kids underwater in a pool, I would take the Aqua Snappy any day over the Nikonos. But for a camera that you want to shoot with great images above water, um, it's a fantastic lens. Because of course, this is the rangefinder lenses on these. Not all of them, but the 35 F2.5, which is kind of like the kit lens you find on most of those, is optically identical to the Nikon S rangefinder lens, the 35 2.5. So um, that's a great lens, incredibly sharp. Uh, but to find it on a Nikon rangefinder, Theo, you got your S2 coming for your birthday. If, if there's one lens beyond the 50 millimeter, I would strongly recommend you look out for it. It's that 35 F2.5. Very, very good lens, very sharp, perfect field of view, no distortion, but a cheaper way to experience that same lens is on the Nikonos's, either the one through four. Yeah, I have I have the two and the four, and both of them have the 35 millimeter lens on them. Yeah, you go. You're right. It is. Um, I haven't, I have, to be honest, I haven't shot with them, but I, I do need to, uh, to try that out. The one through three are pretty neat. The trigger, the shutter release is actually also the wine. I have one right here. Right. Yeah, the wine lever is actually the shutter release, which is funny because the first time you handle that camera, you're like, how do I fire the shutter? Yeah, here we go. Um, this is my Nikonos 2, also was my father's with the same lens mounted on it. But yeah, it has the, the shutter lock on the top. And then you press it once to fire, and then you press it again to um, rewind it. It's, I mean, you can actually get a pretty good uh, frame rate on that, but like, why would you want to underwater? <laughs> so there's an interesting thing about those uh, Nikonises. A lot of people don't know. They were very popular with... Uh... The early models were very popular with war photographers in Vietnam because it rained so much and because they were so durable. But the other thing is the um, the fours and fives were used a lot by the military. And you've seen how there's usually like a black, a green, and an orange. Yeah. Usually the orange ones are military because they were afraid people really? would drop them and lose them. Huh. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Because you would think it would be the green or the black, but it's actually the orange. Yeah. I have an orange four that I use. It's very nice. It has a, a, a normal SLR shutter, similar to what Tim was saying, like the EM, whereas... The one through three, it's kind of like a foil, yeah, like a guillotine. It's a guillotine, almost. which is why the camera is so tall, because it has the shutter housing. It's it's one leap. So I was going to say, we mentioned before, and then we used a bit of a segue of the, the backlight option. And there is a few compacts that did come out with the backlight. I've got the PC35AF. Yeah, yeah, that's a good on one. Pentax here. This is a really nice, I've got the battery grip on here at the, the moment. You have so, the motor wind. Yeah, the motor wind on there at the moment. I usually take it off, to be honest, so I find the motor wind. It'd be annoying but it is a brilliant little um, compact camera it does everything automatically and it has a backlight compensation button on the top which there you go which uh, i think is a fantastic feature yeah it really is because you're you're more in my opinion for general purpose photography you're going to use a backlight way more often than the opposite of that so yeah. you're going to want that plus two way more often than any other setting that a dial would offer. So we're going to we're gonna do one round of guess that camera. Uh, I have a point and shoot in my hand. We haven't talked about it yet, but all you get to do is hear it. 
You guys ready for this? You're going to love it. Can you guys hear that? Did it come through? <laughs> oh, my God. You, you could have done better than that. <laughs> <laughs> the Minolta Talker. It does, I think, three things. It does load film. It, it mentions something about the flash. Use flash. Too dark. Too dark. Use flash. Too dark. Use flash. Yeah. So I the problem is I don't have film in it. So I have to get film in it to be able to like hear any of the other modes. But uh, once again, I have, I keep promoting my site, but I have a review of this and I was able to get an audio recording of all three things that it says, but wasn't it you Theo that found out it was like the daughter of the Minolta distributor is. No, Paul mentioned that actually. Yeah, it was, I read it somewhere just within the last week or so, and I can't find where I, where I found it, but I think I uh, saw it on Facebook. The voice It was on Facebook. I think it was on Facebook. It was for sure. I just can't figure out where it was exactly. But it was it was the daughter of uh, one of the marketing executive woman uh, uh, who had her, her daughter uh, voiced the the words that uh, that it said. It's it's so distorted though. It's like like uh, I remember the old Atari pole position ca- arcade cabinet where before every race it'd be prepare to qualify. You know, I don't know what technology was used in the 80s for voice synthesis, but uh, this is marginally better. I mean, some of the times you have to really listen to what it's saying, um, and it's not helpful at all. It's it's truly a gimmick. So are there different, like, language versions of that, and, like, uh, Japanese and Spanish and stuff? Yeah, so there's a... There, well, there was a Japanese version, and supposedly there's some where so there is a switch to just turn the voice off. So you can see on the back door, mine has an on off. So if I turn it off, the voice just shuts up. Um, but supposedly there is a Japanese version that had a third position that would alternate between English and Japanese. And and then I've read that they they, they say that some of the English only ones like mine, even though it shows a two position switch there is like an in between some way to move the switch halfway between on and off and it'll start talking to you in japanese i don't know if that's an urban legend or maybe just some of them did it but this one clearly does not because i've tried it a number of times to see if i get it to speak japanese and i've never been successful at it but uh this was a neat camera it was based off of uh it's the the in the u.s it was actually called just the minolta afsv there were some versions of it where it was called the talker and they did call it the talker in some of their marketing materials. But if, if you're looking to get one of these cameras, a good tip on eBay is to just search for ASFV. The V means voice. So sometimes you'll find, because a lot of the eBay sellers know the Minolta talker is desirable. So they jack up the prices for them. But sometimes, and that's how I got this one. I actually just searched for Minolta AFS. And I start. I found a bunch of them for way cheaper. And then I just started looking at the pictures. And if you see the letter V, it's on both the front and the top plate. If you see that V, that is the talker. Then, so it, it might be a way if, for whatever reason, you really want to get one of these cameras to get it for a lot cheaper than just you know eBay searching Minolta talker. But similar to Canon, like we were saying before too, with the Dell Soul, uh, you know, they added a gimmicky feature to what's otherwise a pretty good point and shoot. And that's the same that applies to this too. turn off the voice, leave it on whatever. But the images I got from this were really quite good. If you combine the two, you can have a Canon, which starts telling you that it's getting too hot when it's sitting in the sun. <laughs> too hot. Go inside. Hey, if you, if you get a talker, 
that doesn't talk. Clean the contacts that are on the back. They're on the on the back door. When you open the camera up, are I think three or four little gold pins, and those pins get corrosion on them, and that's what connects the battery or the uh, on-off switch. Okay. And if you get one that doesn't talk, just take a, a cotton swab and some alcohol and clean that uh, those pins. It'll solve the problem. The, the one I have right now, when I first got it, it didn't work. Yeah, because the speaker is in the door. Yes. And it's even got like a quick load, this little flap, like Canon did a lot too, where all you do is just extend the leader to a certain point, close that, and then you just, it it does everything for you. So it's, it's really a quite nice camera. I mean, it has... It actually has, but I do know they made some auxiliary close-up lens attachments for it. I was going to say it has a filter ring, but it does not. It supports up to ASA 1000, which some of the earlier 80s point-and-shoots did not either. Built-in flash, stuff like that too. So, you know, fun little camera. And if you want to hear the, the the daughter of some fictitious Minolta marketing guy's daughter uh, talking to you, you know, too dark, use flash. Uh, it's it's a fun gimmick. If we're going to stay on Minolta, one other kind of gimmicky model, Paul, you've talked about this before too. Oh, yeah. The Freedom Vista. This one also is called the Peas. This was a panoramic point and shoot, but unlike many 35 millimeters that had an adjustable panoramic mode that you could turn on and off, this one, you can't not be panoramic. It's only panoramic only. So when you look at the film gate, it, it only exposes the middle section of normal 35 millimeter film which you might think, what's the big deal? I could just crop it. But one thing that this camera does, which most of the adjustable cameras doesn't, is the viewfinder is natively panoramic. What's the focal length? I think it's tw- I think it's 24 millimeters. Right. So it's, it's wider angle than, uh, because most would have been 35 to 38. Right. This is a 24. You, you have a true panorama. How does it compare to the IF600? That's an adjustable one, though. So it's that adjustable. One's a native- okay. That's, that's to my knowledge, and I, I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, this is the only point and shoot that was panoramic only. No, Fuji has one too, the Cardia. I, 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 it was the Jap, it was Japan only, and I have one that uh, was from Kurt's stuff. Oh, really? Okay. But the, the, the thing that is nice, and uh, Johnny Sisson was a huge fan of this camera too, and, and, and I agree with his assessment that it can be, it's, it's less exciting to shoot a camera that has a normal viewfinder and just mask off the top and bottom as opposed to a viewfinder that's just natively panoramic. Like somehow in in my mind, it allows me to see panoramic better if I'm seeing a true panoramic image in the viewfinder that's taking up the entire viewfinder. So when I look through this, I mean, I am seeing a true panoramic image that's the same height as if this was a normal uh, point and shoot, but much wider. So I feel like even though the end result is still just like a crop 35 millimeter frame, it allows me to compose and see the panoramic image while while shooting it, I think a little bit better than some of those adjustable ones are. Like like Theo, you mentioned the AF600. Did, did the AF600 have a, did it have a removable panorama adapter? No, it's just one of those where there's a switch and it just, there's a mask. We mentioned Nikons and I can't, not talk about premium Nikon point and shoots without the TI uh, series. So there was the 3.5 TI and the 2.8 TI, TI meaning titanium. These are fairly decent point and shoot cameras, metal body, 
there's just it's just a 35 millimeter Nikkor f2.8 lens. Certainly good, but I don't think it's really any better than other point and shoots. But the, the biggest gimmick, though, is this huge analog needle display on top that displays the focus distance. So I can actually see what it's detecting. Although, who wants to have an autofocus camera that you focus and then you pull it away from your eye to look at the needle to see? I mean, it's completely useless. I was going to say, it's not completely useless because it was actually, um, I used it for street which was really great to just shoot from hip level. Oh, from the hip? Okay. use that to see what it, what it if it's hitting something that I'm aiming so you, at. It would tell, like, if you agreed with, oh, yeah, that person is about five feet away, and, like, all right, I'll give you that. I suppose for the 28, especially, that would work well because shooting from the hip with a 28. So this is the 35. So it's a 35 millimeter, but the, there was a black version called the 28Ti, which I have somewhere around here. I just don't have it handy. I actually like the look of the champagne model better, which is the 335. The 28 is only black, but they do have an, a, a fairly, I mean, it feels nice and heavy. Uh, it's a metal body, great lens. The viewfinder is cool because this is one of the very few point and shoots I've ever used where there's a, a seven segment LED in the display that will tell you like what exposure uh, setting it's using. You can see the shutter speed, which is kind of cool. Like you, you would expect to see on an SLR. So it, it does have some premium features. Uh, it has a mode dial here on the top, which allows you to go through the various menu options while using the digital display. There is a very, very tiny digital LED in the bottom right-hand corner that just tells you when it's off and how many exposures you have left if you if you need to see it digitally as well. But um, very impractical, uh, at least today, these things go for, for a little bit too much money. And then of course, it does have a sliding panorama switch on it for for any reason you'd want to do that. You know, the other thing, Mike, the, the, the problem that you're one you're run into today on the, the premium digitals, the premium uh, point shoots, here's a Leica uh, mini Lux. Okay. Which is a 40 millimeter 2.4 lens. It has program mode. It has aperture priority. It has manual focus and they're all beginning to fail. Yeah. The circuits on them are failing. This one actually works, but the lens turns off. It retracts. The little door doesn't come, the doesn't door close. Doesn't shot. The same thing is true of those 28 and 35 TIs. The circuits in them are beginning to fail. It was just a, a problem that it wasn't just Nikon, though they are now having the problem on the FAs and F3s also with the LCDs. Wasn't it uh, the type of solder they used at that time in an effort to be more environmentally conscious? They were using a less caustic, I don't know the, the name of it, but... They, they did change the materials, but, you know... The, yeah, but over time, the solder joints disintegrate. Yeah, and, and the circuit boards would fail, and there, there just aren't any parts for them. So if you buy a 35 Ti and a 28 Ti, you really have to be very careful. I mean, even if you bought one that's in perfect working order, like that Minilux, I mean, I, I it's just a terrific camera, but, you know, it's going to fail. It's going to fail at some point. It's I I would I mean I, I know a lot of people have a lot of disposable money. There's plenty of good cameras you could buy for that amount of money, but I, I would not recommend it. Kyle, do you have any experience with with either of those at twenty? Yeah, I, I bought two thirty five Ti's, and they both died. But I got, I found someone that can fix them. So yeah, I got them fixed for like what uh two two hundred bucks. Was it in the U.S. or was it in China? No, it's in uh, the base in China. So I found someone that 
was that recently or was that a long time ago? Yeah, recently, like last year. Okay. As I understand, there there are people in China who are actually repairing the X uh, the X pans also. They're like very skillful repairmen. So yeah. Now, are they able to just resolder the joints, or are they remanufacturing some of the parts? No, they just uh, uh, resolder the joints and just the, uh, the electronic boards for you. Okay, I guess. So it's an option. It's just still not a good one, though. Yeah, you have to ship them to China, and and shipping is kind of yeah, just pray for them to arrive safely. Well, I can vouch. I can vouch for Phototech in Poland for the uh, Fuji film uh, GA forty five. Six four five ZI that we were talking about earlier. Uh, mine ultimately had the display on the the little LCD display on the back go go bad, which meant that you can't you can't set the ISO. Fortunately, I had written down all the clicks so I could do it without seeing, but it was pretty annoying uh, because those the dials can get bumped uh, and the settings can get off. But uh, I found their their video on YouTube showing them doing the repair. They use the existing LCD that you have. They just replace the board. They resolder a new little board behind it. Uh, they do it in basically the same day they get it and and return it back. And so, uh, unfortunately, my 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 camera got lost in Polish um, mail <laughs> um, for about three months. But when it finally did land, they basically had it back to me within a week. Look, we, we've talked about a few famous lineups of compacts and point of shoots there's a couple that we probably haven't touched on well is the the pentex uh spo range they were everywhere um you can't really go to a camera you know bin and not trip over a whole bunch of them but they're fantastic value for what you get uh for what you pay for these days i mean you can pick them up for like 10 20 30 bucks uh and and they're great some of them are going up in value a little bit uh you know you'll pay 100 or 200 dollars for them but the spos are... is there a specific one that you'd recommend look they're all pretty much a bit of a muchness uh they're okay. they but they're good i mean they, they're good it's like getting one of those cannon short shots i'd say it's just you know they just do exactly what they say they're going to do and the other range is the the Mu range, which has obviously become a bit of a premium type uh, range of compacts these days from Olympus. The even the the Zoom ones, they seem to seem to have more problems though than what some of the cheaper ones do. Like the the Mu's have uh, are quite famous for the seals around the lens going, and you end up with the I think it's called the Ring of Death or the Ring of Light leakage so to speak so but they they tend to have those kind of problems and obviously the fixed lens muse are you know up there in terms of uh desirability these days yeah i think the pentax uh the pentax zoom compact cameras like they're all pretty good like the canon ones they're all pretty good i just find them a little bit bland a little bit boring um i mean they take fine pictures but there's nothing like with the canon sure shot line you had all these quirky weird stuff like the waterproof one and the one with the the soft focus filter the, the pentax ones are good uh my first ca my first camera was a pentax one but i just find them a bit bland they're, they're probably the premium pentax point and shoot was the sbo mini uh, and I actually did a video comparing on my YouTube channel, Matt Loves Cameras, uh, doing the, a comparison between the Pentax SBO Mini and the SureShot Sleek, the Canon SureShot Sleek. And they're, they're both fine little cameras. They're just, I don't know, there's just nothing totally exciting or incredible about them, if you know what I mean. They just do what's on the box, what it says on the box. They take pictures and, and 
convenient. Uh, but they're, they're good value for anyone trying to get into using a sure. comp, compact camera. I don't, don't want to make it sound like, you know, we talked to a few premium ones here and they can be worth a bit. If someone's just wanting to dip their toe into film photography and without really risking too much of an outlay, the SBO is a, a, a great option. Yeah, and they're common. I agree with you. You find them at Goodwills. You find them in, in boot sales, garage sales. They're, they're not that hard to find. Yep, Canon and Pentax really good. Ricoh had uh, a number of really nice little cameras. The FF90 series was uh, a very nice camera. What's cool about the FF90, uh, speaking to like how Canon had some quirky things, the FF90 has a monstrous LCD on the top plate, which isn't, it doesn't make the camera better. It's just cool. You know, whenever I hear about a point and shoot that I am not familiar with, I'll usually Google it and I, I try to find like, there's got to be something different about it that would make me want to get it. But there, there were just, there were so many of those cameras from that era uh, that make fine pictures, but they're just boring. And as a collector slash shooter, I like to try to get ones that at least have something interesting. On the Facebook page, Brian McDummel, who's been on the show before, mentioned the Shenon Auto 3001 as a camera he loves. And I feel like we might have mentioned that model on a previous episode, but I can't remember why that camera is special. But then I went on eBay to see how much they cost, and they're selling for three to $400. So does anybody know what's special about the Shenon Auto 3001? The It was the autofocus system, I think. Okay. That's a, that's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, it's a, a strange shape. It looked different. Yeah, it's very thin, very slim. Yeah, he, he talked about it briefly on the Facebook page in our show announcement. And it, it, it looks cool, but I couldn't believe the prices they were going for because I couldn't figure out what was special about them. Shenon had a lot of patents uh, for autofocus. And I can't remember... I can't remember what it was. We did talk about that camera. We did. He said it was on the strap episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe I'll have to go back and listen to my own show to remember what it was he said. But he he said he he said he wanted to join the show, Brian McDonald. Uh, but that was his pick as his recommended point and shoot. And since it's a shin on the one tiny segue into a model that I recommended about a week or two ago to someone on the Discord server was the Kodak, the VR, the K K14. This is the K14, the K12, and the K10. And this is a very ugly camera. It has this huge flip-up flash for good red eye reduction. Um, you can tell it's a Shenon because it has the bug eye auto exposure system that all the Shenons had. Uh, but I've shot this camera a couple times and very good shots. The auto exposure system worked perfectly. The autofocus system got the shots I wanted. Image quality from these cameras are really, really nice. And two more pluses for them is that they sell for dirt cheap. Like I, I mentioned it to someone on Discord and like literally like the first result on eBay was one for like $9. So this is an, if you could deal with an ugly camera, this produces wildly uh, beautiful shots. But from a, from a quirky, weird standpoint, another cool feature of this camera was that it was designed for a proprietary Kodak lithium battery pack, which you might be thinking, gee, Mike, why is that good? I'm sure you can't get that battery anymore. And that's true. However, Kodak thought of that, and they also made it work with a 9-volt battery. So you can, in the same battery compartment where the proprietary lithium battery goes, you can insert a straight, normal, run-of-the-mill Rayovac 9-volt battery straight out of a smoke detector, and this camera works fine on that. So to, to, to my knowledge, I think this might be the only film camera that ever works off of a 9-volt battery. Just on that camera, Mike, I've got a question on that camera. 
when you flipped it up, when you flipped up that front piece, it's you can see through the bit that's holding the flash up. Is that for any particular reason? No, I think it's just there so you can see the lens. Oh, okay. But cool. it, it is that is effectively the power switch though. So you can it's like a tinted piece of plastic. You can't shoot through it. I'm, I'm assuming that's what your question was. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a so if you look at a picture of it, the the flash flips up, it's top hinged. It sticks up, I'd say, a good two and a half, almost three inches above the lens, which for a point and shoot is much higher than they typically go. So that would mean that this would be pretty effective at reducing red eye uh, without having to you know, have all those extra flashes like some cameras did. The, the flip up hinge is the power button for the camera. So flip down, it's off flip it up it's working uh this is called the k14 metalist the k12 is the exact same camera with only two differences one is the lack of a date back and the other one is that it lacks i think a fill flash mode or or maybe it's a flash off mode or something with the flash that's only available on the k14 that the k12 does not have but otherwise they're the same camera same lens same metering system same focus system same goofy pop-up lens same 10 to 20 dollar price tag on on ebay are you noticing a longer life of those batteries uh, that nine volt i haven't shot it enough times to really give you an idea of how long it would last but i would suspect considering nine volt batteries by their very nature are designed to last a while i would i would suspect you probably do get pretty good shelf life off out of them i just looked them up on ebay just to see and they're going for really low nice prices Problem is, they're all in the US and they're like 60 bucks to get it delivered out to Australia. And there's no way I'm paying that. Well, Kodak had a whole series of VR35 cameras. This was the high end model, but all the VRs coincided with the release of Kodak Color VR film, which was Paul, what, 85? Right. Yep. Yeah, so they they wanted to release a new type of basically Kodak Gold, but then along with it, they released a new VR series of cameras, which Really, it would have worked in any camera, but of course they wanted to have new models. And by that point, Eastman Kodak was no longer making cameras uh, in the United States. So they outsourced it to Shinon. Shinon made that camera for them. So if you could find one, Theo, ever one day it pops up your way, definitely give it a shot. I mean, it's an ugly duckling for sure. It's on the par with your Nikon L35 AF, uh, the Canon auto shots. You're going to get really great pictures from it and, and and a large, bulky, awkward camera. The last one, well, I did have a few more, but I'll try and go quickly. But one style of point-and-shoot cameras, which we didn't cover at all, were uh, disposables. So disposable cameras were very, very common. You can still get them now. You can go to Walgreens and actually still buy a disposable camera. In fact, that's still the type of camera people will get when they want an underwater camera. They make the, what is it, the Kodak Splash or something like that. That's a very common use for modern day disposable cameras. But, you know, everybody thinks of the disposable cameras from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But this one right here is called a Technopack 1. And it says it's made by Technicolor. It's never been opened before, but it comes in this black and blue, all plastic body. It's incredibly cheap. But this was uh, a very early version of a disposable film camera, 35 millimeter. It says that in order, it has 20 exposures. So that's, you know, before 24 exposures. So this thing's from at least the 70s. But it very clearly says that after completing a roll, you must send it back to the manufacturer to be developed. Uh, It says it uses Emulsion X1, which who knows what that is. If I had to guess... This probably is using some type of cinema film. 
what was that lab in Seattle that sold all their own film, but it was actually just e- Seattle Filmworks. Yeah, Seattle Filmworks. Fifty-two forty-seven. Yeah, so I I'm gonna guess that whatever film is in the Technicolor Technipack one by Technicolor is probably a similar concept to that, but it comes in this red, white, and blue box that I have. Uh, you slide it open. It actually has the address printed already on the box. You just put like two stamps on it, stick the camera in, drop it in the mail. And uh, they, uh, you know, you push the button and they do the rest. But also late, uh, lately, even currently as us, as a, as a retailer, before all of the kerfuffle with the film, ca- uh, film cameras and film coming back during the pandemic and all that stuff there, we've always had an end dial. I've been with, with, with my retailer for, or I should say my employer for almost 10 years now. And we've always had an end dial of disposable film cameras and and constantly, like it, we never really. I mean, it tapered off, yes, but it never stopped. It was constant. It was constant. It wasn't every every single day, but it never hit zero. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we still have we still have, and and now evidently now we have even more now because Harman's in into the disposable cameras. Uh, uh, Fuji, we've always carried the Fuji line, the the waterproof ones. I'm not sure if anyone's got one of these. They're a Sunny Life underwater camera. Focus free, 28 millimeter, still in the box. I like the box. It's like pink and yellow. I know. I, I actually can't bring myself to open it to use it. Well, I had a camera I got from Kurt. Paul, you talked about weird cameras. I know you got one. It was the cat camera. I unfortunately found someone who was willing to buy it off of me. So I ended up selling it without opening it. I had done a Google voice translate, or I used my phone at least. I took a picture because it's all written in Japanese. And it said makes cat sounds. So while I never got a chance to try it, I feel like it was like a Minolta talker. You press the shutter release and maybe it would meow or something like that. Yeah, I still got it. I, I can't figure out. I Open it I, up. Come it's on. one of those things. I can't open it. I mean. I, I couldn't either, but. No, it's it's like a, a an oatmeal bot can around. Yeah, it's a it's a big can, like a huge pop can with a pop like a with a pull tab on the top. Pull tab on top of it, but it's written entirely in Japanese. It's like it's made by Holga. I've seen those. Yeah, I had one. I sold it on eBay, and Paul had the other one. Why he had two, I don't know. But Paul, I've got a couple of compacts that I know you're very fond of. Oh, I specifically put them out. The Mamiya U. Oh yeah, the Mamiya U. Yes. With the new fixed button on it. Well, I just sent one of those. I put one in the mail today to Anthony, uh, and he's going to have to get in touch with Bill Rogers and fix that. Uh... Which is what I did, and it was so easy. Pull the top off, and you just slot in the new membrane. And I've got the autofocus version, which, uh, ah, which is more of a point yeah. and shoot. Uh, but, but do you have the handy Sam? No, I do not. I do not. I happen to have a handy Sam, unused, sealed in the box. It's and for anybody who doesn't know what that is. It's literally a hand, a cradle that you put the camera in. And according to Marcy Merrill, it was designed for selfies. So like you would you would cradle the camera and a selfie, and you could kind of angle it up down sort of any direction you want. So if you had a table and you wanted to do a selfie instead of a tripod, you would put the camera in the hand, Sam, set the delayed action timer and take a step back and you could get a a picture of yourself without having to worry about a a tripod or somebody holding it. Well, if it's up for sale, Paul, we might have to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. It's he just had a birthday. Well, I I happen to have a a, a Mamiya magazine camera that uh, 
has Theo's name on it that I got to get shipped out. So maybe I'll just stick the handy Sam in the box with the uh, with the magazine. Oh wow, special. Um, so we're we're running short on time here. We we did lose Mark Faulkner. We did lose somebody else. Kyle Lou, you, we had mentioned quickly on the Facebook page. I I joked about the Raleigh QZ. That's a very expensive high-end camera with a super fast shutter speed. There's so many others to go over. You know, we barely scratched the surface of, of all the different models out there. Uh, I, I had thought if we had time, we could talk about the Ramera, which is a, a Koa camera that's also a radio uh, that came out in the <laughs> 60s. There's just so many cameras we could make tons of episodes about. But I feel like we covered a nice range of high-end cameras, some bizarro cameras, and some some pretty common cameras that are affordable. This is a great segment to get into if you're interested in film photography. We talked about the Olympus IS series, which is basically a point and shoot SLR with a fixed lens. Tim volunteered the Nikon EM, which is a, a somewhat point and shoot SLR with a very compact ba- body that uses the Nikon F mount. So you still have uh, access to all their lenses. Uh, Raphael's holding up the Yashica a samurai which is another point and shoot it's a half frame camera but it is a true slr we mentioned that one in the half frame episode and, and i'm not a fan of the ergonomics of it i find having to grip it while shooting it it's it, it very easily could slip out of your hands and fall to the ground and, and explode but there's a ton of options in this segment that are worth checking out. And uh, there's really no wrong answer when it goes to trying some of these. Because if you're new to this hobby, it, it can be intimidating sometimes hearing about all the Leicas and all the high-end Nikon range finders and all these ridiculously expensive cameras. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, an Olympus Mu or a Pentax SBO or a Canon Auto Shot or, or any other number ones that are out there. Because we all have them and I've used them. And, and truth be told, uh, a nicely exposed image from a Nikon or Canon or Fuji or Ricoh point and shoot. Uh, once you print it out, most people aren't going to know the difference between that and something shot through an SLR. It's, it's more about the flexibility and capabilities that the camera has. But before we go, does anybody else have any last comments or, or things they want to share? I have one, one last one. And I forgot I had this until just now because it always hangs up by my door as a uh, emergency camera. Yeah, don't drop it. The Belomo Orion EE. Do not buy one. <laughs> Do not buy one. This is a this is the Soviet Union's idea of a point and shoot. It's completely automatic exposure, but there is a manual override. It's shutter priority. And the lens on this, I mean, it's a triplet. But now this, this came out in the 70s. And due to my testing, I have determined that this lens is not rectilinear. That is correct. Something they figured out 110 years before this came out. Uh, this camera has that issue. So don't buy one of these. Stay away from uh, any of these. And, and the meters always go bad on them. So. Before he left, Mark Faulkner nominated the Horizon Compact as a Soviet point and shoot. So uh, take take for that with what you will. I, that is one I have not come across. Tim, thanks to you from the last episode. I'm looking for the Nikkor O35 millimeter now. There you go. The F2. It's a great lens. Yeah, enjoy it. It's good. Can't wait. I think the only thing I would add is if you're going to buy a point and shoot like a cheapy Nikon or something like that. Do it for the form factor, you know, and because you want that compactness. Because if you want a higher quality image, and, and it's really debatable whether it's a higher quality image, you can go get an N55 SLR with a kit lens for under 20 bucks and shoot a Nikon SLR image. 
So do it for the form factor. That's what you're Absolutely. paying for still. Pick what you like. Don't, don't, I mean, as much as I write reviews and most of the people here talk about what they like, if there's something you enjoy and it's what you want to shoot, by all means, go for it. There's no wrong way to shoot film. Believe it or not, this H35 is on my belt every single day. I never leave home without it. And I, and I do forget sometimes my camera bag. Because of Mike, this is on my belt every day. It's got an uh, AGAT 18. Yeah. Wonderful cameras. Great lens. All right. Today's December 11th. As usual, it's going to take us a couple of days to get this out. Uh, real quick plug. Tomorrow will be the ninth anniversary of MikeEckman.com. Nine years ago tomorrow, I wrote my first review. Uh, my site was originally just meant to be a personal blog. I had no idea it would expand the way it was. Had it not, I would have never met any of you guys. This podcast would not have existed. I, I just, it blows my mind that I've been doing this for nine years. So maybe I'll have to think of something special for next year when I hit 10 years. But this will also be the last normal episode of the year. Obviously, Christmas and New Year's and other holidays are coming up soon. We're, we're hoping Paul, Theo, Anthony, and I to have something special between now and the end of the year, but it will not be a normal episode. So stay tuned to the Facebook group, the Discord group, my website where all the typical announcements are posted do we post them on instagram theo we do anthony posts so instagram we just made a Flickr page so this is our last normal episode of the year i want to thank you guys for coming on the show once again tim peters it's great to see you back aj again uh raphael thanks for coming for the first time kyle lou uh has popped up a couple times and shared some interesting tidbits andrew it's always great to see you we did lose matt uh we did lose mark like i mentioned before too uh but as always the topics and discussions on the camera city podcast are influenced by you guys we look forward to seeing you guys next time and everybody have a safe and happy holiday season uh bye everyone good night merry christmas everybody I'm with the remarkable new Minolta talker. When the light's too dim, it talks to you. Too dark, use flash. When you're out of flash range, it tells you. Check distance. And when the camera's empty? Load film. It's the auto exposure, auto focus, 35 millimeter camera that loads, advances, and rewinds the film all automatically. The new Minolta Talker talks you into good pictures. Great pictures. Only from the mind of Minolta. Too dark, use flash. I said too dark, use flash. Great pictures. Do I really have to work with these idiots?